We're reading from John chapter 8, and we'll read verses 48 through 59. John 8, starting at verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you were not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham came into being, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Dear Father, this passage is astounding. The claim of Jesus at the end of this passage is incomparable. Father, I pray that our our hearts would be open this morning to pay close attention to what Jesus is actually telling us here and to the implications that it has for us. Pray, Father, that that Your Word would, would reign in our hearts. And we pray this together in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. There's a word uh, that I've been using a lot since we started this study of the Gospel of John, and it's, it's the word preeminent. I guess it's probably time that I make sure everybody here knows what that word means. Uh, it's, it's actually a very good word for English, English speaking Christians to know. Merriam Webster defines the word preeminent as, quote, having paramount rank, dignity, or importance. And you might be thinking, okay, well, that's not much help unless I know what paramount means. Well, paramount means preeminent. Just messing with you. It, it, paramount means the topmost, the utmost. If you look at Paramount Pictures' logo, it's a picture of a mountain, and the word paramount's right at the top. The word preeminent means paramount or topmost in its category. So if you are the preeminent neurosurgeon, that means you're the best there is at brain surgery. If you're the 
preeminent cellist, you're the best cello player anyone's going to run across. The Bible speaks of preeminence frequently without actually using the word preeminent per se. It means the greatest among the great. When Paul refers to Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he's identifying Jesus as the preeminent king, the king over all other kings, the Lord over all other lords. In the passage we looked at last week, we got to see preeminence from another angle. Jesus identified the devil as the father of lies. That means that Satan's not just a liar. He's not even just the first liar chronologically. He is the father of lies. He's the preeminent liar, the worst of the worst. In that same passage last week, Jesus declared himself to be the preeminent truth teller. He promised that those who abide in his word would know the truth and that truth would set them free. Free from bondage to sin. And then, a few verses later, he declared himself to be that preeminent truth. He said, if therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So see, Jesus isn't just the preeminent teller of truth. (laughs) He is the personal revelation of God. Truth in the flesh. And so in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I have no doubt that in my zeal, there are times when I overstate some point that I'm making in a message. But I have no worries whatsoever that I'm going to overstate what Jesus says at the end of the, uh, at the end of this passage, that I'm going to somehow exaggerate its importance. That cannot happen. Jesus is going to tell us the preeminent truth about the preeminent truth. And that's the title of this message. He is going to declare with crystal clarity the central assertion about himself in the whole Bible. That assertion is the foundational truth of genuine biblical Christianity. It's the truth that all by itself exposes most of the destructive heresies that men have devised about God as heresies. It's the foundational truth that demands that Jesus Christ become our one legitimate obsession. The truth that compels us to follow Him with every ounce of our time, our money, our passion, our devotion, our mind, our strength, and our being. The assertion that I'm talking about is found in some other passages in the Bible, but nowhere is it presented as concisely, as compellingly, as undeniably as it is right here. If at the end of our time this morning you disagree with me about how important this assertion that we will see actually is, I'll forgive you for being wrong. At the end of last week's passage, Jesus revealed the outcome for all who pass God's paternity test. Those who re- whose response to the truth 
identifies them as sons of God. He said that those who keep, who treasure the Word of God shall never see death. That's the outcome. If your father is God, the outcome for you is you will never see death. That declaration is the launch pad for what Jesus says in this passage. And that's why I included verses 48 to 51 from last week in our scripture reading this morning. When Jesus said to these Jews, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Their response was, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died. And the prophets died too. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Twice in those verses, these Jews point out to Jesus that Abraham and all the prophets died a long time ago. Now, I've mentioned this before, especially when we were talking about Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, but the exceedingly literal interpretation that these Jews applied to Jesus' words here was very untypical of Jews in their day. The rabbis who taught in their synagogues spiritualized everything. The thought that they would, they would take a statement about life and death and limit it to just physical life and death, that took some tweaking for them. That was a stretch. Earlier in the passage when Jesus talked about slavery and, and freedom, they immediately went to the spiritual. They knew they had been slaves in the earthly realm over and over. But here, when Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death, they jump tracks and they assume <laughs> that Jesus is talking about physical death rather than spiritual death. It's like when Nicodemus said, I, Jesus talked about new birth and Nicodemus said, I can't enter another time into my mother's womb. In case you guys haven't noticed, when unbelievers reject the truth revealed by God, especially the truth about Jesus Christ, they don't do that because that truth defies logic. They adjust their logic so that they can reject Jesus. That's actually a pretty good lesson from this passage. They adjust their whole construct of logic to whatever allows them to reject Christ. They submit their logic to their real father, who used to be our real father, the father of lies. And what happens when you submit logic to the father of lies? It ceases to be logical. At this point, these men were enraged against Jesus, even though they had twisted His words so they could make them as unbelievable as possible, they nonetheless actually understood what His words implied about Him, about Jesus. Their reasoning went something like this. Okay, Jesus, You're saying that anyone who treasures Your words will never see the grave. If that's true, that would make You better than Abraham, the forefather of the covenant people of God. That would make You better than all the prophets of God. None of them ever made such a ridiculous promise to men. And if they had, nobody would have believed them because they all died. 
See, they were, these Jews were wrong about the kind of death Jesus was talking about, but they were right about the fact that He was claiming to be greater than Abraham and greater than all the prophets. Jesus had them right where He wanted them. He has a way of doing that with people. Now it was time to show these Jews the poster child for Jesus' claim that those who keep His Word, His truth, will never see death. And that poster child was none other than Abraham. Jesus said to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see My day. And when he saw it, he was glad. Now I've heard all kinds of explanations for what that statement means and when in history it happened. And most of those explanations, I believe, this is just me, but I believe they tend to rob that statement of its power. Because I think it means pretty much what it says. I believe Jesus is saying, Abraham has been looking forward to the day when I would come from heaven to earth to do what I'm doing now and what I'm about to do. And when Abraham saw how God's ancient promise to him to bless all the families of the earth through him and through his seed, singular, Jesus, when Abraham saw that unfolding, he was really, really happy about it. See guys, Abraham's not dead. This wasn't the only time during Jesus' earthly ministry that He said Abraham isn't dead. In Mark chapter 12, when the Sadducees, who didn't actually believe in resurrection, decided to throw a curveball at Jesus in an effort to dispense with the whole concept of resurrection, what did Jesus say to those Sadducees? He said, Regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken about this whole resurrection thing. See, even before the children of God get their resurrection bodies, they have resurrection life. They never die. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That means Abraham's still alive. So is Isaac. So is Jacob. And not only is Abraham not dead, But as a child of the Most High God, he's privy to what his father and master is actually doing. That's what Jesus says in John 15 is true of friends and not slaves. They're privy to what their master is doing. Abraham knew this stuff was going to happen, and I believe he had a front row seat to watch God's promise play out just as all the prophets had foretold. Now, if that doesn't, if that sounds a little fishy to you that Abraham saw these things happening as they happened. Bear with me for a second. Because Moses and Elijah knew all this was going to happen too. Now we get to the transfiguration. 
In Luke's account of the transfiguration of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, Luke says that when the disciples saw Moses and Elijah speaking with the transfigured Jesus, the topic of conversation that they were having with Jesus in that glorified huddle was Christ's departure which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And that passage says that they, Moses and Elijah, were speaking to Jesus about that coming event. Doesn't that sound like maybe Moses and Elijah, whose bodies had been dead many hundreds of years, were aware in real time of what God was about to accomplish through the death and resurrection of Jesus? That's what it sounds like to me. That's what they were talking to Him about. Abraham was still alive. He still is. So is Isaac. So is Jacob. So is Samuel. So is David and Gideon and Lot. Maybe, just maybe, that great cloud of witnesses surrounding us in Hebrews 12.1 that was talked about in Hebrews 11 are actually witnesses not just of what God during, did during their time on earth, but of what God is doing during our time on earth. Maybe when that passage says we have, present tense, a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, it means what it says. Now many Christians think that if God, if God let the saints in the heavenly realm in on what's going on down here in the earthly realm, that would rob them of their joy and it wouldn't be heaven anymore. My response to that is two simple questions. Who knows the most about what's going on down here on earth? God. Does that rob Him of His joy? Beloved, when we, when we shed these perishing bodies and we stand in the presence of our holy God, nothing we have ever known and nothing we will ever know will ever rob us of our joy. Because we'll see things the way He does. And that'll make all the difference in the world. And what's cool is we don't really have to wait. See, to the extent that we see through God's eternal eyes, through the truths that He reveals in Scripture, we realize we got nothing to sweat down here. Nothing can rob us of our joy if we're seeing things the way He sees them. Whatever you believe about the saints who have gone before us getting to see what's going on down here, one thing that's painfully clear in this passage is that these Jews couldn't see what was happening right in front of their faces. They were incapable of hearing the words of Jesus precisely because He was speaking the truth and they were of the father of lies. So when Jesus told them that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, And when he saw it, he was glad. What did they say? They said, you are not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? Again, the last thing they wanted to do was to hear what Jesus actually had to say about spiritual life and spiritual death. So they they remained steadfastly in the physical realm for this particular conversation. Okay, now the setup was complete. (laughs) Now Jesus was ready to take the gloves off. 
he was about to proclaim the preeminent truth about the preeminent truth. They had just asked him, whom do you make yourself out to be? In today's way of speaking, that question in verse 53 would be more like, who the blank do you think you are? To call that a question is too generous. It's an accusation, and in this case, it was an accusation of blasphemy. Jesus is about to give him an answer to that question, and he's not going to pull his punches, and they're not going to like what he says. But before we see his answer, let me ask you a question. Why do you think Jesus has been so reluctant to come right out and say, guys, I'm God. I'm the second person of the Trinity. Back in verse 25 of this chapter, a slightly more benign version of this question, who are you, was posed to Jesus. And his response there was, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? So what's the answer to that question? What had Jesus been saying from the beginning, recorded in this gospel, when, it, when the subject was his identity? He had been saying, listen to the one who sent me and you'll know the answer. Hear the witness of my Father and you'll know who I am. He had been saying that over and over and over. And that's his first answer to this group of Jews here at the end of chapter 8. When they asked that accusatory question, whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. See, He doesn't try to make a case for Himself against the accusations of blasphemy. He just points them yet again to the witness of His Father. Now stay with me, because this will be important for us. Why did He do that? Because He did not come to glorify Himself. That was his father's job. That has huge ramifications for us. We'll talk about that in a minute. I wish I had time to go back through this gospel, passage after passage, to show you how consistently Jesus has held to this approach, always relying on his father to make his case for him. Even in chapter 5, when Jesus spoke of the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of his own works, the witness of the Scriptures concerning Him, He ultimately attributed all of those witnesses to His Father. Through many witnesses, all of whom answered to God the Father, He, the Father, has declared the identity of His Son. That's how we know who Jesus is. And that testimony has been presented for thousands of years. Now in John 8, 58, Jesus who always spoke only that which His Father gave Him to speak during His time on this earth finally declares of Himself what His Father has been saying all along. He says to these men, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham came into existence, 
I am. And of course, that takes us back yet again to that burning bush at the top of Mount Sinai where Moses first met the living God. He was a shepherd in the desert and he came across this bush that was engulfed in a consuming fire yet not consumed. And he heard the words, Moses heard the words, do not come near here. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place upon which you are standing is holy ground. And then God commanded Moses to go back to Egypt to be God's own ambassador to demand that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, release his people from their 400 years of bondage. That's a pretty demanding assignment for a shepherd. So Moses asked God a really important question. He said, when I tell the Israelites that the God of their fathers sent me on this crazy task, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. The word Yahweh is simply a variant of the word for I am. And God told us what it means. It means I am. I'm going to take a little time to explain a couple of things to you about that name, Yahweh. For most of you, this is old hat. But it's something everyone who ever reads the Old Testament needs very much to understand. So bear with me while I explain some things for those who may not have all this under their belts yet. First, a question, another question. When God says, this is my memorial name to all generations, which means this is the name by which all generations shall remember me, you think we're supposed to, to use His name, to know His name? The Jews determined very long ago that they couldn't. That they could not say or even write this covenant name of God except to, to transcribe the Scriptures. And then they made changes underneath it so that they'd tell you how to say it so you wouldn't actually say the name of God. Officially, the reason that the Jews determined never to say or write God's revealed name was out of deep reverence for God. But there was another reason that was more likely the real cause of this amazing prohibition. See, if you couldn't say the name of God... That took care of one of the Ten Commandments because how can you take the name of the Lord in vain if you can't even say it? That only left nine commandments you had to worry about. Except, of course, for the 613 other commandments that the Jews smoked out of the Law of Moses. The word that God told Moses is His covenant name to all generations consists of just four Hebrew letters. Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. And I flipped them around because Hebrew is backwards. The closest letters in English would be Y-H-W-H or J 
J-H-V-H. Ancient written Hebrew didn't have vowels. When you had to write on rocks, you conserved space. So ancient Hebrew manuscripts are just a string of consonant letters and you have to fill in the vowels. And because the Jews abandoned the vocalization of this word long ago, the oral tradition that told the the Masoretes, the scribes who added vowel pointing to manuscripts, the, the oral tradition that told them how to pronounce Hebrew words didn't help them with this one because they didn't have any oral tradition. Okay, So the vowels are anybody's guess, which helps you understand why there are different permutations of these word, of this one word. That's how we come up with words like Yahweh. Yahweh or Yahweh or Jehovah. The four root consonants all come from the, from the, the Hebrew word. You with me? Okay. A lot of people, you know, they see the words, they don't, they don't know this is how this happened. You won't find any of those English versions of the name of God in a typical English Old Testament. That's because the translators of most Bibles in most languages have respected the very long-standing Jewish tradition of rendering this name with a word that simply means Lord, Adonai. But Lord is a title. Yahweh is a name. So in order to distinguish the actual name of God from the the kind of generic word Lord, most English translations put the word in all caps. Because ancient Jewish tradition removed all of every use of this name from the Bibles, in effect, the Bible in your in your lap, open a page of the Old Testament, any page, and tell me if you scan it, see if you see the word L-O-R-D in all caps. It's kind of hard not to find it on any page. You know why? You know how many times the name of God appears in the Old Testament? Anybody want to guess? 5,195 times. 5,100 and 95 times. You think God wanted us to know His name? In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am Yahweh. And that's what it looks like in your English Bible. He says, I am Yahweh. That's My name. I will not give My glory to another nor My praise to graven images. Fortunately, The word Lord is in all caps. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a clue that God was actually giving us His name. I don't like to single out individual translations and express beefs about them. i got a beef with all of them. There are just a couple that use the word Jehovah. All right. I want you to know this. Every time you see the word Lord in all caps in in your Bible, your brain should register the covenant name of God. And that covenant name means I am. And by the time these Jews heard what Jesus had to say here, they had been exposed to that name over and over and over. And they they tried so hard not to be exposed to it that they could not help having it in their heads. 
in some form. You can't try that hard to push something aside and not have it in your head. In one simple word, God declares His eternal pre-existence. He proclaims His place as the Creator of all that has existence. He asserts His absolute ownership and dominion over all that is. The Word, the covenant name that God gave to His people for all generations is I Am. Now we're ready to hear and to understand Jesus' answer to the question, whom do you make yourself out to be? After explaining to the Jews that He does not glorify Himself, He simply tells them what His Father has been telling them all along. He says, before Abraham came into existence, I am. He had declared that same thing in verse 24 of this chapter when He said, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. And again in verse 28 when He said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Not who I am, that I am. But those two statements earlier in the chapter might have left a little room for uncertainty. In the context, they might have been interpreted to mean I am who I say I am, or I am He. But not here in verse 58. Verse 58 makes absolutely no sense grammatically or otherwise unless Jesus is claiming for Himself the covenant name of God that God gave to Moses for all generations. Before Abraham existed, I am. And the Jews who were standing there hearing Jesus' words understood exactly what He was saying. This was the last straw. The camel's back broke. Verse 59 says, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. How do you keep hiding yourself when you're in plain sight? Well, it helps if you're God. And this man, this perfect, sinless man, was, is, and always will be God of very God. And there is no way that those who wanted to kill Him could possibly put their hands on Him until the time had come when God, by His predetermined plan and foreknowledge, ordained for Him to be put to the death by the hands of godless men for godless men like us. That wasn't going to happen until God said it was time. Nobody takes the life of Jesus. He has to lay it down. In Isaiah 25, the prophet tells of a glorious day that's still coming. The day when God will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples. Not just the Jews, all peoples, plural. On His holy mountain. That passage says that He, the Lord God, will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples. Even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. And then... Then it tells us what that veil, that covering over the nations is. It says He will swallow up death for all time. He will wipe tears from all faces and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth for Yahweh has spoken. 
And then Isaiah tells us, this is beautiful. He tells us what we will say. We who get to attend that great banquet, he tells us what we will say on banquet day. We will say, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. No man or woman will ever begin to understand how very, very good the good news is until he comes to realize that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is God. Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ promised long ago through the prophets in many portions and in many ways, is the eternally existing God, the great I Am. And people, that means that the same God whose wrath you and I fully deserve to suffer forever because of our high-handed rebellion against Him is the God who came down from heaven to earth and lived 33 years without ever sinning and bore the full weight of both the guilt and the penalty of our sin upon Himself. Our Creator did that for us. You don't have to get your hands around that. If you could fit that into your mental categories, your brain would vaporize. You don't have to comprehend that incomprehensible truth. You have to believe it. You have to believe it. You have to believe that your Creator became your Savior. The ramifications of this incomparable truth for what we say to the lost and how we live out our faith in Jesus day by day are crazy huge. I'll just draw your attention to a couple of those ramifications and leave the rest for you to think about for the rest of your natural life. (laughs) First, as you follow Him and proclaim Him and do as He did in this world, let God worry about your reputation. It's none of your concern. Your reputation is none of your concern. That was part of the focus of our worship this morning. Jesus did not honor Himself. He left that to His Father. And He most certainly intends that you and I will not honor ourselves. In 1 Peter 2, verses 21-23, to Peter says to every child of God on behalf of God, you have been called for this very purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example to follow in His steps. Does that sound like it's something you might need to do? Here's the example. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. That's our assignment. Pretty clear, isn't it? How much do we need to advocate for ourselves in this life? None. 
You and I don't need to spend a single second worrying about how people respond to us or what they think of us or what they do to us, even to the point of death. Those things are not our concern. As soon as we take into our hands our own vindication, our own defense, we take God's job away from Him and He's not given up His seat to us. We who belong to Jesus have the same advocate that Jesus had. You think you need any other advocate? Until the day comes that God ordained for your physical life to end, neither men nor demons can take your physical life. Cannot happen. And that applies to everything else about you. No created thing and no created being can touch you without going through God. No way. It's not possible. Read Romans 8, verses 31 to 38. That's what that's all about. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? That means you and I, beloved, we have nothing to fear. Nothing. The second thing I want to point out is tied to the first. Jesus did not come to honor Himself. But you and I are called to do exactly that. To honor Jesus. Just a real quick statement about Trinitarian theology. The Son proceeds from the Father. He was sent from the Father when He came to earth. He does not glorify Himself, but He glorifies the Father who sent Him. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and He glorifies both of them. We who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit are empowered to do what the Holy Spirit does and that is to glorify the Father and the Son. In John 5, verse 23, Jesus said to all, all humankind, He said, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So if you create a religion, I'm not talking to you guys necessarily, I hope not. If you create a religion that says you worship God and you do not worship and adore Jesus Christ, you don't worship God. You're believing a lie. And there's a, there are more of those than you can even begin to count out there. New ones all the time. If Jesus held back on proclaiming who He was and is, that does not mean that you and I are supposed to be reluctant to do so. Beloved, we are here to clearly, explicitly, confidently, unapologetically proclaim that Jesus is the great I Am. John does so in the first verse of this Gospel, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Does it sound like John is pulling his punches about the identity of Jesus? Paul does so in Colossians 1.9. He says in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's God. In Titus 2, Paul says, we who belong to Jesus Christ by faith are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of what? Of whom? Our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. He's God. 
You and I are not supposed to pull our punches when it comes to telling the world who Jesus is. Here's what we're supposed to say about Jesus. Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. This perfect, sinless man, this Son of God, this Messiah promised through all the prophets, this Jesus is the great I Am. That's what we're supposed to tell people. Dear Father, we cannot even begin to comprehend the magnitude of Your gift to us in Jesus, Your beloved Son. (laughs) Your Son who has known You perfectly from eternity past just as You have known Him. Your Son who was with You at creation. Your Son by whom all that exists came into existence. Your Son, God of very God, who came from heaven to earth to make You more fully known to man than ever before. The very thought that He came to save us is greater than we can fathom. We confess with thousands of thousands of Your holy angels, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen.